This is Book TV's Afterwards. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. This week, our guests are Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wooden. They're co-authors of the book Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, which reports on the issues facing the working class in rural America. They'll be interviewed by Democratic Senator Jeff Berkeley of Oregon. I'm pleased to be with you to talk with you about the new book that you've put out, uh, Tightrope, uh, and particularly because uh, it's taking a look at a small town in Oregon, a town that you come from, Nick, and I come from a, a small rural town in, in Oregon. And I just ponder how in your professional careers you're traveling the world, uh, you're living in a different environment completely, but and you rep- have reported on world affairs from all kinds of different directions and some of the worst tragedies on the, on the planet, but you chose to really focus on a small town in Oregon. Why? Well, we were running around the world covering humanitarian crises, and then we would periodically go back to my beloved hometown of Yamhill, where my mom is still on the family farm, and we saw a humanitarian crisis unfolding there. Um, a quarter of the kids who were on my old number six school bus are now gone from drugs and alcohol and suicide. And Cheryl and I tried to process that. We, the kids who got on the bus right after me uh, were the Knapp kids. Um, Farland was my year, and then Zeeland and Nathan and Keelan and their sister Regina. Um, smart, talented kids. Farland died of uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, Zeeland died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Farland blew himself up cooking meth. Regina died uh, from hepatitis, from injectable drug use. Uh, Keelan survived only because he was in the Oregon State Penitentiary 13 years. And so we, you know, for a while we wondered, is this something about about my bus, about Yamhill? And now we realize this is a national problem, that we have deaths of despair, that life expectancy is falling or was falling for three years in a row in America, and that Yam Hill and my old bus is kind of a microcosm through which to see that pain across America. So you saw this through the lens of returning home, and I think it almost could have been titled School Bus Number 6. So many stories are drawn from the friends that you had growing up there and expanding from there. And Cheryl, you grew up in Manhattan, Upper West Side, I believe, and that's a whole different different world. And um, I'm early in your relationship. You got to see Yamhill, and you saw it unfolding over over these last couple decades. And how how did the lens through which you saw it differ from what Nick was seeing? Well, first of all, I don't think you can get farther from Yamhill uh, than Manhattan. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It really is smack in the middle of uh, you know uh, urban or, or the urban world. And so when I first approached Yamhill, I was a little bit, uh, you know, what are these people like? And I was like the the car door (laughs) the first time she came on the farm. (laughs) But I was basically like, we think of what's going on right now as a tale of two Americas. Uh, You know, on the top deck of a boat, there is the party going on. On the bottom deck is, you know, where the hole in the hull is happening. And all these people are struggling, trying to figure out what to do and how to stay afloat. Uh, And so I think Manhattan really, in many ways... Uh, the people of Manhattan, uh, many of them are, you know, on in that party, and they just don't know what's going on uh, in the lower decks. 
And so for me, it took a while. Once I started learning these people and meeting them and, and learning about their backgrounds and talking to them, I realized they are very complicated human beings. And the stories that we learned uh, about their household, about their, about their backgrounds and the journeys that they took, uh, really um, just were so alarming and so you know, touching and heartbreaking that uh, you know, we just couldn't help but, but say, wow, we've got to tell the rest of the world. So you've used the analogy of the ship and the upper deck and the lower deck and what's going down below. Your, your book uses another analogy in the, in the title, tightrope. And in some of my speeches and in Congress, I talk about trying to pave a wide, solid path for families to thrive. And here it's not just a narrow path, but a tightrope. What are you conveying by that? Absolutely. The whole point is that, you know, for those of us who are in the upper middle class and above, who are very well educated, uh, at least graduated from high school, some college, uh, we have a path, a fairly wide path ahead of us. And so if we fall, we can pick ourselves up. But many of these people, especially people in Yamhill, in the small towns around America, in the rural areas around America, people are walking on a tightrope. And one miss and they fall, there's no safety net. And they're falling into a, a chasm that you describe in this book as involving drugs, alcohol, uh, domestic violence, um, uh, suicide. It's a pretty oblique picture. And the, the, there's a dynamic that you wrestle with about, well, is this personal responsibility? They just need to walk that tightrope better? Or is it their fault they got onto a tightrope instead of a nice, well-paved path? So personal responsibility versus collective responsibility. Um, what, what, do you, what have you concluded? So, look, personal responsibility is absolutely real. Um, I, I think one can make the case that progressive likes myself sometimes don't fully appreciate that, that, that personal responsibility is real, that it, it, one has to give agency to people. But... I think that over the last 50 years, we have vastly overdone it and have become kind of obsessed with this personal responsibility narrative, blaming the people who fall off the tightrope for the catastrophes that follow. And we, you know, at this point, you can predict with some accuracy the outcomes of a newborn infant. And uh, when you can do that, it's not because that infant is making bad choices or showing irresponsibility. And so, you know, look, by all means, let's have the personal responsibility conversation. But if we do that, let's also have the conversation about our collective responsibility to try to help the people who were on my number six bus. And there are so many ways we can help them in ways that benefit them and that benefit society. So Paul Ryan, who you quote in the book, says, in our country, the conditions of your birth do not determine the outcome of your life. But in the book, you, 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 you introduce this term or you share this term, ACE, or adverse childhood experiences. And what you're basically saying, if you have collected several adverse childhood experiences, your odds of succeeding uh, drop dramatically, which you portray as the odds of being in poverty uh, increase substantially. So explain this, this, this how these childhood adversities really impact your course in life? It's pretty well documented by scientists who have analyzed these situations. So many of us have an adverse childhood experience. Parents get divorced, 
there's a big move from one state to the next that is traumatic for a little child. Uh, but when you start piling up six, seven, eight, or you know, even three or four, that can have a really traumatic experience, partly uh, depending upon the age of the child, specifically uh, if the child is between zero and five, uh, that is when the brain is developing at its most rapid pace for the rest of that person's life. I mean, you know, that's when our brain develops quickly. We think of children as really resilient, but you know something? They're not as resilient as we think. And in fact, when there is stress in the house, when there is violence, when there's yelling and abuse and chaos in the house, that creates stress in the baby. And that means that the cortisol uh, um, hormone is coursing through that brain. And as that brain is growing, it, uh, this cortisol impacts the development of the brain architecture for this little baby. And so if this is not corrected, that baby's brain is not going to develop uh, you know, really properly. And so if we can address these issues early on, and there are treatment, there are ways of, of uh, using therapy, counseling, uh, we can actually put that baby, that young child, onto a better course so that we don't um, you know, see them two decades later, you know, uh, in poverty or in drugs or dropping out of, of college it's, uh, or high school even. It's not just that. It's also not just the psychological uh, trauma and, and troubles. It's also health. So, um, in fact, people who, um, you know, have, you know, stacked up ACEs are much more likely later on in life, unless they're corrected, to have heart disease, to have chronic diseases like diabetes. That's a huge cost on society as well. Can I just add something? I mean, one way of thinking about the the personal responsibility narrative or about the trajectories that Cheryl mentions is there's something we talk about called the success sequence that conservatives sometimes mention. And it's true that, you know, if uh, if somebody does three things, uh, they largely avoid poverty. If they graduate from high school, if uh, they get a full time job and then um, they have kids only after marrying, then only 2% live in poverty. If they do none of those three things, 79% live in poverty. And clearly those involve an element of, of bad choices of personal responsibility. But they also reflect what we as a society do. I mean, one reason, so American kids have sex at the same rates as European kids but have babies as teenagers three times as often because we as a society don't make comprehensive sex education so available and don't make birth control so available. Um, Our high school graduation rates are substantially lower than those in many other OECD countries because we don't place the same premium on it. There there are certainly ways we can can shift this. It's not because American kids are dumber than others or or less diligent. And so... um, I think that this obsession has neglected the public side of the equation, the, the policy side of the equation. So the odds are stacked against folks uh, who are raised with these various stressors in childhood. And I wanted to go back for just a moment, Cheryl, to your conversation about how the brain is actually rewired. In what ways does that rewiring compromise one's success in adulthood? Well, a lot of it has to do with the development of the brain architecture. And so the cortisol is, uh, you know, the stressor hormone. Uh, you know, most of us as adults, you know, it happens for a little bit and then it goes away. It flows right through us. But because the baby's brain is developing so rapidly at that time, and also it's so young, uh, it's much more fragile than we think, uh, that it really does, it can stunt or impair the development so of the brain. So does it make those children more susceptible to addiction 
less able to uh, have, if you will, a committed relationship or just multiple effects? Multiple effects, and they do show later on that all of these things that you talk about um, also more likely to not graduate from high school, uh, you know, more likely to have, uh, you know, um, suffer from things like ADHD, a number of, of ailments that just make it harder for uh, the child growing up to actually, you know, succeed. And so yeah. that's why yeah. pediatricians are so focused on trying to address ACEs. And certainly in California, uh, the new Surgeon General there, that's one of her missions. There's some evidence actually from the University of Oregon that all this cortisol, that one thing it does is that it prepares children for a uh, violent, turbulent, dangerous environment, and it puts them, therefore, on a hair-trigger, fight-or-flight response. And one consequence is that it makes it harder to concentrate on the blackboard because they are being trained to look for potential threats behind them. And... So that seems to be one pathway in which this cortisol uh, impairs education uh, and, and concentration. I believe that in the book you, re, you note that uh, Warren Buffett referred to this, I think, the ovarian lottery. And I've heard him speak of, about how if he'd been born under different circumstances, he wouldn't be a multi-billionaire, both because of the infrastructure that others established, but also because of the circumstances of his, of his birth set the path for him to... Uh, do well. So it's, it's disturbing that in so many ways the United States as a developed country seems to be doing a poorer job than other democracies, other republics that uh, could have similar problems. And you note that we're 39th on clean water, drinking water and 40th on child mortality and 61st on high school enrollment and that we suffer more stress than the average person in Venezuela, and that our life expectancy, as you mentioned, is, is dropping. So here's the United States with our Congress uh, working on these issues, our state legislatures working on these issues, our county commissions. How is it that we're having such horrific outcomes? So it does, it is a tale of two Americas. And so, you know, on the one hand, we've got all these economic statistics that are showing us GDP is really doing well. Stock market is, you know, rocket high. And so we look at these measures, inflation is low, we look at these measures and we say, oh, we're doing really, really well. But, you know, then if you actually peel behind the statistics and also look at other broader statistics, you can see that actually that's not the full picture. So a lot of men, for instance, uh, you know, are have dropped out of the workforce, so they, they won't even be counted. Uh, and these men may be self-medicating, they, you know, they've been out of a job for a while, they don't, think the, they don't have the confidence to, to jump back in. Uh, and we interviewed a number of them in, in Yamhill. And so we know that that's what, what is happening. They're, they're, not even, they're not even looking, and so they wouldn't be counted in, as looking. But if you then look at the life expectancy statistics, as, as Nick mentioned, uh, that is another broader measure by which, you know, it's because of these deaths of despair, which are three uh, types of deaths of despair that were characterized by uh, two economists at Princeton, uh, Angus Deaton and Anne Case, and they looked at uh, census data, and they saw that the deaths of despair were really deaths related to alcoholism, deaths related from drug overdose, and deaths from suicide. Actually, we're at record high suicide rates uh, since World War II. And yes, they, they, they dropped a little bit. The drug overdose uh, deaths dropped a little bit in uh, 2018, so that's a good sign. Um, but it's still 67,000, 68,000 people who died from drug overdoses. That's not a small figure. And so that weighs, that weighs on the entire 
nation's average life expectancy. So it's pretty dramatic. So we're seeing a very dramatic failures, if you will, to pave a, a good road here in those outcomes. But why is the United States not doing a better job in, in getting people off the tight rope, getting people onto a solid paved road? So um, I think that this is really a 50-year uh, erroneous course that the U.S. took. Um, I think it has something to do with Nixon's Southern strategy in 1968 and a tendency to stigmatize uh, investments in human capital and in benefit programs on the basis that uh, it would be African-Americans who would disproportionately benefit. I think that tended to lead in part to an underinvestment in, in human capital and in benefits across the U.S. I think it also relates to President Reagan's narrative where government can do no good and is invariably part of the problem. Um, and a kind of glorification of, of business, uh, taking of power from labor unions to corporations, uh, coupled with uh, the war on drugs, mass incarceration. I think a few of these trends came together. And so until the 1970s, the U.S., was essentially in line with other OECD countries. Our life expectancy was actually higher than the OECD uh, median. And then, then since the 1970s, the other OECD countries have surpassed us. And I think the root cause is an underinvestment in American human capital and American citizens. So OECD countries, meaning developed countries, uh, uh, similar to our, our own, and... I, so I, let me throw out a little bit of a thought here, and, uh, because I see this through the lens of uh, trying to change policy in government. And what I'm seeing is that our institutions have been changing in ways that, that create power for the powerful. And you do touch on this in your book. You note at one point that in a, where you have high wealth divisions, the wealthy then have disproportionate political power which leads to rules that benefit the wealthy. Now, if we think about America today and the inequality that we're seeing between the rich and the poor, uh, we're at a very, very high ratio compared to these other countries. So is it possible that our inequality in wealth is influencing the political system in ways that is preventing us, if you will, from investing the resources on the fundamentals that pave the path for success for ordinary families. Yeah, I think that's another prism through which to look, and I think that's exactly right, that you create this inequality that then self-perpetuates through the mechanism of economic power turning into political power. I think it's a little bit similar to what happened in the Gilded Age uh, in American history, um, and I hope so, because, of course, then progressivism followed. <laughs> but it took a Great Depression. It took a world war, uh, and so that's a little scary that it took uh, that type of intervention to put us back on a path where really for the three decades after World War II, we had an investment in programs that, that really did lift up the, the middle class. Not everyone. Discrimination was still rampant in some sectors, and, uh, but we made some progress in that realm as well. Is there, um, in order to to implement the various, some of the various policy proposals in your book that we'll, we'll get to in a moment, uh, do we need to change the structure of political power in the country? Well, I do think that um, we need more enlightenment uh, when it comes to this segment of society, and I think that they're being totally ignored. 
partly because everybody can point to the high GDP and there's no need to change anything. Because on average, uh, everything is going well. But if Jeff Bezos walks into a room of 100 people, on average, everybody will have a higher mm -hmm. You know, level of wealth, oh, but you know that's not going to. Will that make help any me difference. out if he comes in here on right now? <laughs> it doesn't make any difference to the people who are not the Jeff, not Jeff Bezos. So, uh, and that's that's the problem is just recognizing that there that there is this um, need to lift up all Americans, and I think also it's really important for maybe it helps policymakers to recognize that if the U.S. wants to compete against the rest of the world, other countries like China and India with you know. Billion, uh, billion plus people power. We don't have that people power, especially we have much less if we don't try and lift up all Americans and have as many Americans as possible reaching their full potential to be productive, to be innovative, and to actually really bring America back to number one. I know that uh, my parents really talked about the sense of unity coming out of World War, War II, and they relayed how in their lifetimes they, they experienced this great leap forward. My, my mother came from extraordinary level of poverty. Uh, her mother with her first three children uh, lost those three children to the county in the middle of the Great Depression. She lived in a boxcar. Uh, who could imagine my grandmother realizing that a, a grandson um, might serve in the U.S. Senate? Extraordinary change for both sides of the family. But you describe in this book how the community of Yamhill saw much of this impact of moving forward during those years and how in roughly the mid-70s uh, started to stall out and then to decline. So what happened in the mid-70s that uh, started to drive this reversal? Well, first of all, it, you know, I think many people in Yamhill and probably in your hometown, Myrtle Creek, would attribute their past success to rugged individualism and and there's certainly a, a lot of that. But frankly, historically, it was also a certain amount of brilliant government plans. You know, the reason people came to places like Yamhill was the homestead programs. Um, then rural electrification transformed places like Yamhill. Uh, the GI Bill of Rights, likewise. So I think those programs to invest in, 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 in people and communities certainly helped. And then when things, when I think essentially the root cause of things going downhill was good jobs going away. Biggest local employer in the Yamhill, greater Yamhill area was a glove factory. Uh, it closed down. And there were some new jobs that came in, but the people who had worked at the glove factory were not able to get those new jobs. Men in particular felt the loss of jobs not only in a monetary sense, but psychologically as well, uh, they local institutions like churches were not able to handle the the, the trauma. Uh, people self-medicated. Um, they got criminal records, which made them less employable and less marriageable. The family structure collapsed quite quickly, and the social fabric, which had been very tight knit, unraveled quickly. So you had uh, the light manufacturing. You had gloves, uh, and um you had the consequences. You mentioned GI Bill of Rights. So a big portion of that was uh, the uh, mortgage program for, right. for veterans uh, returning, being able to buy house, have equity, have savings. Have, and I think you're absolutely right about jobs being uh, critical to the strength of a family uh, because it does give uh, structure, it gives dignity, and it gives resources. 
And uh, when you are unemployed, bad things start to, to happen. And we've seen this in mill towns across Oregon when, for example, a lumber town loses its, its uh, sawmill. You see some people move out right away. Uh, you see others who dwell in domestic violence, alcoholism, uh, drug use uh, in, increase. And so uh, jobs are critical. You know, I think in Yamhill and in probably a lot of white communities around the U.S. back in the 1990s, there were a lot of pejorative comments made about African-American communities that were struggling at that time. And there was a lot of sanctimonious talk about how the problem was uh, black culture, which was a byword for uh, what were called deadbeat dads or people making bad choices, et cetera. And meanwhile, the great Harvard sociologist William Julius Wilson said, no, it's about, it's about jobs leaving. And he was exactly right, because when jobs left white communities like Yanhill, when they left Appalachia, when they left Maine, when they left parts of Ohio, the same pathologies unfolded. This was, you know, this wasn't about culture. This was about jobs. But also in the U.S., we are not as resilient a country when it comes to job losses. And you can see that very easily um, with a comparison to what happens in, in Canada. So after the financial crisis happened, uh, when auto uh, you know, makers, they laid off a lot of auto workers and they laid them off in Detroit and in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, often by the same company. And you could see the difference. So, for instance, in the U.S., partly because it was the financial crisis, they extended unemployment benefits so people got more money. But... They actually lost their job, and they also lost their health care, which is a huge stressor on a family. Over in Canada, what happened was in Windsor, yeah, they lost their job, but they didn't lose their health care because Canada has universal health care. And then the government intervened and looked around for where the demand was for other types of jobs, and they found out that nursing had a demand. So they actually arranged for training programs uh, for auto workers to retrain to go into the nursing field. And yes, it's not their, their dream jobs, but they were able to get ushered back into the workday world. And years later, they're not self-medicating, they're not depressed or isolated the way um, uh, you know, people in the U.S. were. So I want to probe for a moment the, the loss of jobs. Uh, and this is a, an area where we all might have different opinions, so I thought it would be interesting to throw it out there. Uh, because when what I saw happening in the mid-'70s was the start of the the opening of our market uh, to uh, basically Chinese production. And Chinese benefited from competing with Americans with lower wages, uh, lower environmental standards, lower labor standards. So they could often make things more cheaply. So you had a glove factory, and that glove factory might have said, well, we can't compete with the Chinese making gloves. Or maybe we can right now, but let's move our factory to China because we will benefit and our cost of production will be less, while our sales price will be roughly the same. We'll make, we'll make more money. And we have seen a lot of factories go overseas. And uh, some of us feel maybe we made a mistake about being so quick to open our market in the way we did, uh, helping to drive this job loss. Well, I, th I think that on the one hand, um, globalization could have been a force that we couldn't actually compete, uh, you know, we couldn't, uh, you know, prevent from happening because individual factories are going to make their decisions based on what is going to yield the best return. So if they were going to Costa Rica or if they were going to other places in Latin America or in, or in Asia, then they're going to make that decision on their own unless there's a law that says you can't go overseas. Um, but I do think there would have been competition from other countries going overseas. So I think it's, it's a force that actually, you know, may have been slower, um, but... Nonetheless, we didn't adjust very well. And 
overall, it kept down inflation because costs were lower for goods that we that Americans use. So that goodness was the benefits were spread among you know 320 million Americans rather than just you know the workers losing their job was you know felt much more uh, intensely by a smaller group of people. But I think as a country, though, every you know. Other countries also have globalization, also have automation. They haven't suffered the same, to the same degree that the U.S. has, partly because of the policies that the U.S. has taken. We don't adapt quickly uh, to job losses. We don't actually, as a society, try and help with nudges, uh, you know, the people who have been laid off. It's sort of, you've got to find your own job now. But other countries, they also have universal health care, the other peer countries, um, and they do much better at job retraining and helping laid-off workers uh, retrain for other types of jobs. Yeah, Did you I'm, want to touch on that piece? <laughs> no, I, so I remain a free trader, but I'm a somewhat chastened free trader, and I think that a lot of us didn't appreciate how, you know, we talked about creative destruction. Um, well, that, you know, it's great in a textbook, but what I think we hadn't appreciated was that those people who lost their jobs in the old industries might um, self-medicate and might cook meth and their families might break down. And that it became, while the trade might benefit the size of the U.S. pie as a whole, it became all the more important to make sure that we supported those who, as a, process, as a part of that creative destruction, uh, might lose their jobs and invest in their education so that they could adapt to new jobs. And we blew it. We, the, the winners did not compensate the losers at all. Yeah. And I remember very well as I was uh, studying economics, the argument was if you have a trade deficit, the exchange rates will adjust over time. And so the trade deficit will adjust and therefore you won't have a net loss of jobs. That turned out to be wrong for a, a different conversation, a lengthier conversation, but one we were slow to respond to. So in the situation that you're describing with universal health care, uh, you mentioned that in the book as one of the remedies. Now, I often talk about the four foundations for, or, for a family to thrive. And I, I picture a house, and you're at four sides of the foundation, and you have health care, and you have housing, and you have education, and you have good-paying jobs. And so uh, in your final chapter in the book, you start to address various issues, and they pretty much fall into those four categories, and maybe starting with health, uh, universal health care, and eliminating unwanted pregnancies, which goes back to having access to health care and uh, family planning. And why is the United States doing so, so poorly on, on pregnancies versus versus other countries. And, and of course, you have noted already that that is one of the three factors that has a huge impact on the success of the next generation, uh, having children outside of a structure of a, of a family or having them early in life. Well, I want to stress, first of all, that we have made progress. So, for instance, on teen pregnancy, uh, you know, the peak was in the 1990s when, you know, there was so much teen pregnancy. And then we, we sort of recognize this problem and we have addressed it a lot. It's come down by a lot. It's still higher than in other countries, but it has come down by a lot, which shows that when we put our mind to something, we actually can... Policy makes you know, a difference. Yes, it, it really does. does. It yes. does. It absolutely does. No, and, and, and we actually have made progress on things including homelessness. 
Um, we actually reduced veteran homelessness by nearly half in six years, and it's continuing to go down under the current administration as well. So when we want to make change, we really can do it very well. It's a matter of having the political will. So I do agree with all those four foundations. They're really critical. Uh, and I think healthcare is very important. And I just hope that policymakers will remember that, you know, that it should be available to, to everybody if we want to lift all Americans so that they can actually help America compete against the rest of the rest of the world. Healthcare is really pretty important. As I travel around rural Oregon, I've heard a lot of people note that the expansion of Medicaid uh, has greatly helped in rural areas. Uh, for one thing, it doesn't have a deductible. That means you have to pay thousands in the beginning, so therefore you avoid going to the doctor. And because people can pay bills through Medicaid, that means the local clinic has often expanded in size and taken on things like drug addiction uh, or mental health. And I wondered if, if uh, any of this um, strengthening of, of rural health care might have been uh, something that, that affected or improved health care in, in Yamhill. Oh, absolutely. We actually have talked to um, a lot, lot of people in Yamhill who say that they are so grateful that, you know, that, that their health care is paid for, um, um, including one of our friends who ended up dying. But, you know, he died in the hospital, and he was in the hospital, you know, several times, you know, before he passed away. And so his family was very grateful that, that he could be in the hospital, at least to have some more time with the family. Yeah. And so some of those families that you saw that were struggling with these, they've been able to get help. Uh, with uh, addictions, Absolutely. mental health, and so forth. Absolutely. I'm not sure that they make the connection that, okay, Oregon was an expanded Medicaid, and therefore they got it. I don't think they make those connections, but I think they're very grateful for the, for the result. I am starting to see a little bit of a keep-your-government-hands-off-my-Oregon <laughs> health plan <laughs> yeah. uh, reaction, and, and certainly the, the premises of the exchange, which means you can get uh, a policy at the same price, even if you have a pre-existing condition, have become highly valued uh, factors. Can we turn the tables and ask you a question? Oh, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so we make the case in tightrope. <laughs> we make the case in tightrope that the politics on some of these issues may be changing. But you know, you're on the front lines of politics. You're the ones who actually has to get votes from some of these folks. But we we argue that as some of these social problems have become. Uh, associated in the public mind, not with African-Americans, but with working-class whites, it is the framing of them has made it easier politically to address in a way that is hypocritical, but perhaps more compassionate as well. And that uh, on issues like Medicaid, for example, uh, that the politics may now be and lifting the minimum wage for that, that the white working class is socially conservative, but actually economically maybe more liberal. Do you buy that? Well, certainly on health care, abs absolutely. Uh, people used to come to my town halls and say, I'm just trying to get to 65 and stay alive so I can get on Medicare. I do not hear that anymore. Uh, and in the poorest and most rural parts of Oregon, uh, those are the places where the expansion of Medicaid, called the Oregon Health Plan, has had the biggest impact. And I think you would have a hard time prying that out of their hands uh, uh, because it really has been a, a, a very positive, positive impact. And for the community for jobs, because the healthcare, increasing healthcare jobs is a significant contribution to a community as well. The things I hear about now are, well, why am I getting gouged on the high cost of drugs? And why uh, is it a situation where 
health care if you're not on Oregon Health Plan is so stressful. I change jobs, I change health care. Mm. I earn a little more, I'm off the Oregon Health Plan. How do I get health care in the middle, middle of, the, of the year? Um, my, my spouse has health care, but I'm not on their plan, or I was on their plan, but then we're dropped. How do I get health care? What about my kids? How do I get on children's health insurance program? So the complexity of mm. our system. And I hear people saying the other challenge, and just through, hear this throughout rural Oregon, is why do I have to fight with the insurance company? Right. And uh, so at the very time you're sick, and maybe you're struggling with, with cancer or some other major disease, you're tr studying these bills, trying to figure out, can you pay the deductible? And then, uh, shouldn't this be covered? And you're having to, to be in a fight with your insurance company. This stress is much higher in our system. Absolutely. Than, it's a crazy than, system. Than, than anywhere. So health care is, is one piece. And by the way, that gouging of, of Americans on drugs, 80% of Americans are ready to, to say, we should get the same fair price any other developed country gets. But Congress can't get it done. And that's another sign of the damage to our, our institutions. Yeah. Uh, that uh, lobby, the lobby can exercise political power of the wealthy through... Uh, both the uh, supermajority in the Senate uh, and through the level of lobbying and campaign donations that mean a very fundamental problem affecting people across the spectrum. We're not addressing it. So that's, that's tr this, it's troubling. Well, let's go from health care to education. Early childhood education and trying to seek universal high school graduation. How can we do better on education? Right. Um, so the U.S. actually pioneered um, you know, mass education and we used to be number one in high school education. It was the pride of the country, and that's you know, how we became number one in, in, in terms of the economy. Uh, but we actually have slipped uh, you know, over the years to number 61 in one year, and, and we might be you know, proving they, they, um, worked on, they, they actually used different data, so we might be up to like number 30, but that's still very far from number one. Uh, what can we do? Right now, only one in seven, one in six uh, students graduate from high school. Uh, I mean, that's kind of appalling. Um, we could, you know, and some states do this, uh, require kids to stay in school until the age of 18. Hopefully they'll graduate from high school by then. Or we could tell them if you want a driver's license, you have to be enrolled in high school. We could do things like that. And, I mean, it's sort of like there's no one silver bullet. There's a lot of different silver buckshot that you have to, you know, incrementally get at in many different ways. And it's kind of like the way, you know, we um, improved car driving safety. You know, we first implemented seat belts. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, when my parents first got a car, we didn't use seat belts at all. But that was very dangerous. So and to improve safety, we started adding seat belts. We added airbags. You know, we have padded dashboards. Um, but this personal self, this personal responsibility, this narrative is, is basically the equivalent of saying, okay, let's put darts uh, or needles inside the dashboard. So when you hit yourself, it's going to teach you a lesson, mm. you know? Mm. But I think what we need to do instead is add these little safety measures to keep nudging these kids to stay in school. So you had mentioned earlier the structure of children's brains, and we've learned a lot about that. And um, in the book, you all touch on how uh, early education can have a, a huge multiplier effect. Uh, some, in some studies, seven times the return for the investment. And I've actually seen studies that were an order of magnitude higher than that, like 42 times as, as uh, because reduced prison costs and more taxes are paid and, and so forth. Less right. crimes are committed. Um, 
And so when, when you see it laid out like that, as, as you all have laid it out, shouldn't we all just rush and, and say we are going to invest a lot more on early childhood? Absolutely. I mean, that is the highest return of investment available in the U.S., not some hedge fund. Um, and every, just about every other country is able to provide it. They can, uh, they can afford early childhood uh, programs. And, you know, I would argue that the big reason to do it is the benefits to the children. But there are also huge benefits to the parents, especially single parents, in terms of providing an ability to work. Uh, I must say, um, uh, I went, when we were raising our kids, and there were two of us, and we could barely figure out how to drop the kids off and pick them up, I thought, how does a single parent right. do it? Uh, it's it's uh, in- incredibly hard. And then you mentioned the high school graduation, keeping kids in high school. It took me back to when I was in high school, and um, our high school was uh, expelling uh, students who smoked. And so I went to the administration, and I said, is this really the right thing to do? I mean, these kids are not going to, to get a high school education. Should it be something different? There are some high schools in the area, uh, I, I told the administrators, that have decided to go the other way, have a smoking room for students, uh, figuring it was better to keep them in school and graduating and that they weren't going to stop their smoking habit. Um, it was an interesting thing. I went around to a bunch of high schools. But, but that's a point that, mm. that, that you're making here, Cheryl, is find a way to to help keep kids engaged in school. And there's something you didn't mention that I'll toss out there in that regard. When I was in my blue-collar school growing up, uh, I didn't have to pay any fees for the sports. Cross-country, uh, tennis, uh, speech team, chess team. I wasn't on chess team. I was on the others, but not on chess. no fees. Now my, my kids have graduated from the same school, same blue-collar school, and everything has fees attached mm which really reduces student engagement. And, and would, is, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd get rid of those fees to help students stay in school. Yeah, no, I think that's a real issue. And I, I think that um, administrators are sort of caught between, okay, we know that these are the kids that we want to keep in school. On the other hand, we need to make ends meet. And if that kid is disrupting the teacher entirely so that she cannot teach you know, 20 other kids... I mean, is that good as well? So, you know, there, it, it's, it's, it's a tightrope yes. that, that these school yes. administrators have to navigate as well, and, they, and it's yes. with the f- school fees. If we don't charge, then how are we going to pay for these other after-school teachers to come in and do something? They, they need to get, you know, we have to pay them for their time. So, Let's quickly touch on two other areas that you talk about in the book, eliminating homelessness for children, so the housing factor, and jobs, a right to work. How do we improve in those two areas? Well, homelessness, we know that the costs of homelessness, especially for children, are enormous, the, the impact because of these ACEs that we talked about earlier. And homelessness, you know, as Cheryl mentioned earlier, we were able to reduce veteran homelessness by half uh, between 2010 and 2016 because we found it unconscionable that veterans were out in the streets. If we similarly found it unconscionable that in America today, we have uh, on any given night more than 100,000 kids who are homeless, then we could reduce that by half. Maybe we couldn't eliminate it. We could dramatically reduce it with some combination of vouchers, uh, shelters, priority, uh, et cetera. And so, again, it comes down to political will. And instead, the president's budget proposes cutting housing programs. Well, what do you say to those who say, but, but Nick, you're saying raise my taxes 
which isn't going to help me to help somebody else uh, out, um, why can't they figure it out for themselves? Well, so it's easier to make that argument about adults. In the case of these kids, though, those kids have not made any bad choices. They haven't been irresponsible. They, they're homeless because of that ovarian lottery that you mentioned earlier. And we also know that in the case of those homeless children, that if we don't pay at the front end, we're going to end up paying at the back end many times over. So it's in the, if they want to save tax dollars, it's in their interest to invest in getting these people housed. But I think it's also important to point out, well, maybe you have the mortgage deduction, so you are getting a little bit of a, of a subsidy there. Or maybe, for instance, uh, you're the case of the hedge fund mogul who bought who paid $238 million for a condo in the heart of New York City and pays property taxes based only as if the condo were $9.8 million. You're getting a subsidy there. So there is a lot of, sort of you know, unevenness in our tax code and loopholes that you, know, you can drive a truck through. So absolutely, you're, you're so right. The tax code gives all kinds of subsidies to the very well-off. Uh, and... Um, uh, back when I was working with Habitat for Humanity and I saw the impact of a home for a child, uh, I knew that what you're saying about the need for children to have a home is absolutely right. A stable home changes life for the child. Remember the children who said, it's the first time in my life I've been able to invite a friend over mm. and um, because I never had a place. They've been living in a car with their parents or in a tent with their parents or in a basement with their parents. And then those children started to do better in school. And those children are going to, to uh, contribute more in taxes and be more exactly. productive citizens. And so uh, let's make that, that happen. Uh, I um, was, there was one last set of ideas you all put forward that doesn't fall neatly into these four areas of education, health, housing, and jobs. And that is baby bonds and a monthly child allowance. Uh, how should we look at that? So um, Britain was able to reduce uh, child poverty in half under Tony Blair beginning in 1999. And one of the key elements they provided was child allowance. It's basically a monthly payment. Uh, it can also be done in the U.S. There's a lot of discussion about doing this through a tax credit. Uh, Michael Bennett has co-sponsored a, a bill that would do uh, something along those lines. Just about every other industrialized country does it. Uh, the National Academy suggested that that and some other strategies would reduce child poverty by half in the U.S. at a cost of about $100 billion a year. We can afford a $2 trillion tax cut, but we can't afford to reduce child poverty by half. And so that monthly child allowance goes to the parent and reverberates in their ability to, to do much. Maybe it keeps them in their house so they don't That's get right. evicted. Maybe it enables them to have a child participate in sports or who knows what. But, but we know the outcomes are better. And the baby bonds are, they, they actually, Congress pioneered them. They, they were often called individual development accounts, and they involved a payment to a, a child that would be in a savings account, often matched uh, and could only be used as further savings were put in, and they could only be used for uh, a, buying housing, for uh, starting a business, uh, things like this. Well, you all don't, probably don't know this, but I started the first IDA program in Oregon. First one west of the Mississippi, wow. so thank you for highlighting that in your, in, your, in your book. And it came about because of my work at Habitat for Humanity, where I saw ownership made a difference. And then I developed rental affordable housing. And I said, how can people get some stake in this? And I had an intern research the idea of matching grants to buy homes. And she discovered the start of the IDA program. And so I started uh, the Tenant Investment Program, which became Portland Regional IDAs. 
And then I became a state legislator, and we, Oregon has the biggest uh, subsidy for IDA programs in, in, the, in the country. And we need bipartisan help now to reauthorize a new IDA bill. So I'm, I'm hoping you'll publicize that a lot as you, because uh, it was a bipartisan uh, hand up to the three pathways from poverty to the middle class, uh, that being uh, education, small business, and home ownership. So I so much appreciate you all engaging in this uh, conversation uh, and exploring the challenges we have in America through the lens of a struggling rural community. Uh, what happens next? I hear there might be a, a, a film coming out associated with this book. That's right. There's a, a film version of Tightrope uh, that we hope will, uh, will be on TV in the fall. So stay tuned. Okay. And Cheryl, what things have I missed that, that we should make sure uh, viewers know about the experience that, that you all have gone through examining the challenges? Well, I think that your focus on jobs was really important because I do think that jobs are at the heart of so much uh, pain and suffering uh, that befalls uh, a household. It's certainly the ones that we uh, interviewed in, in Yam Hill and also ar around the rest of the country. I think it seems to be a common, a common theme. So whatever policy you make, I mean, job creation is really key. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, everybody has to contribute to that. Uh, and policymakers can do uh, it can be very, um, very, uh, you know, influential when it comes to job creation. Yeah. Well, I think uh, your examination of these these issues through school bus number six and through Yamhill and the broader challenges facing America reminded me very much, you know, in a way of Robert Kennedy going to Appalachia and saying, "Look what I'm seeing in Appalachia. Here in America, such poverty and such stresses," and then realizing that that uh, these these uh, situations uh, were on a par with countries that we think of uh, as so much poorer than the United States of America, and can't we do better? And that examination helped launch a lot of th thinking uh, towards um, uh, making our country work better uh, for all Americans. So thank you for ex exploring this. It's been a pleasure to converse with you about it. It's timely in the sense that we are in the middle of a policy discussion that uh, always accompanies a presidential campaign year. Well done. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this program, check out C-SPAN's The Weekly. Our guest this week is Pete Loge, director of George Washington's project on ethics in journalism. He joins us to talk about the issues facing Americans during the 2020 election cycle.